going to be looking today at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And the theme, really, of this year's sermon series during Advent, um, and again, I try to do different themes each year. Sometimes we cover, we do sermons that are based upon the four Advent themes. Sometimes we'll take a look at different Christmas carols, and we'll unpack the theology that resides in those carols. This year, what we have been doing is we've been doing a sermon series where we look at different people's responses to the incarnation. We've been looking at different people's responses to the incarnation. And so the first week, we looked at Joseph. What a a difficult situation Mary's betrothed would have been in to find out that his future wife was already pregnant. Last week, John Huggins took us through the passage of Scripture that looked at Elizabeth's response when she came into contact with Mary as Mary was pregnant with the baby Jesus. And today, we're going to be looking at one of the more familiar passages around Christmas time, the story of the shepherds and how they respond to the message of the incarnation. And so, what better way than to begin this story of the shepherds than by letting Linus from Peanuts recount his particular reading of Luke chapter 2. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then in just a moment we'll let Linus kick us off this morning. Father, thanks so much for hope. Thank you so much for peace. Thank you so much for joy. Thank you so much for love. Father, I thank you that all of those ultimately tell us about you, that you love us, that you care for us, that you desire to be reunited with us. And Father, the incarnation also tells us something about ourselves, Father, that we matter to you, that we have dignity because we are created in your image. Father, I pray this morning that as we read Luke chapter 2 and as we sing these songs, that we would be reminded that ultimately you and your son Jesus are our heroes, and Father, you are our only hope. We pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Just a quick guess out there. Anybody tell me what year the uh, Peanuts Christmas special came out? Anyone? 19, somebody said 1976, 1965 is 55 years old, so been around a little while, and those are all child actors, too. It's interesting to read the story behind that. I think CBS originally rejected it and said they wouldn't air it, all sorts of good stuff. Anyway, for some of us, the Peanuts Christmas special we just saw that little clip from is right up there with uh, Tiny Tim, it's right up there with Rudolph, it's right up there with Buddy the Elf, some of you guys are familiar with Buddy. The passage of Scripture, again, that Linus read just then is Luke chapter 2, and uh, it's the, the passage of Scripture where the angel and then the angels appear to the shepherds. Let's read it again, but we're going to read the larger context beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. So if you'll follow along with me, it'll all be up on the screen. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, I'm going to pause along the way as we're reading through Scripture here, but notice immediately that Luke grounds the incarnation or the the moment that God entered into humanity as a human in a particular moment, in a particular historic time. There are two points of reference here that link uh, this with history. First, he mentioned Caesar Augustus. Augustus ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD. His tomb is in Rome, Italy. Our family actually tried to visit the mausoleum seven years ago when we were on sabbatical, but when we got there, it was closed for renovations, which was a bummer. Chris and I had seen that tomb about 10 years prior when we were in Rome. We were walking through the city, and we stopped to sit down on a wall because we were a little bit tired, 
And as we sat down on this wall, we turned and looked to our left, and we noticed a placard identifying the building behind us as the mausoleum of Caesar Augustus. Rome, Italy is filled with so much history and so much amazing artwork that the mausoleum of Caesar Augustus didn't even make it into our guidebook, right? Didn't matter that much to them, apparently. Of course, for us, the site was totally meaningful. Here was a historical anchor into the most important chapter in all of human history. The second point of, uh, of reference we see here is to the rule of Quirinius. He was the governor of Syria. In uh, the first century Jewish historian, Josephus records Quirinius coming to power in 6 AD. And so this gives you an idea of around when Jesus was born. And the point in mentioning each of these is to remind us all that the incarnation, again, this act of God entering into humanity, was never intended to be understood as a myth. That's not at all what it was intended to be understood as, but rather it was intended to be understood as a real event rooted in real time and in a real place in real human history. Let's look back at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem in the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Again, let's pause for a second. Let's jump into this. The purpose of the census that we read about here was really quite mundane. The ultimate goal was to get a head count for the purpose of an accurate taxation for the people that were under Roman rule. And Joseph, being from the house of David, was required to go to his ancestral home, Bethlehem, for this particular census. The trip from Nazareth, which is where uh, Joseph and Mary would have been living at the time, was and still is a total of about 120 miles one way. And so on foot, this trip would have taken a normal person about five to six days, but of course Mary was pregnant, and so it may have taken them even longer to make their way from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, which was just outside of Jerusalem. And this journey, of course, fulfilled what we read earlier this morning in Micah 5.2, where we read, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Back to Luke 2. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So 2,000 years ago, there were no baby superstores. Mary and Joseph had to make do with strips of cloth and a manger. Most of you will know that a manger was a feeding trough made either of wood or of stone. It would have been used to feed donkeys and camels and cows and sheep and goats. And when not being used as a crib, it would have been filled with seed or grain or hay. And I'm sure that Mary and Joseph cleaned it up for their special infant, but the picture here is not one of opulence. It's not one of privilege, but rather of poverty. And notice that Luke says that there was no place for them in the inn. Now, the, the word translated inn can also be translated as guest room, but either way, there was no room in it. And so it seems likely that Jesus spent his first days in less than luxurious accommodations. Back to verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
Now today, if you are a shepherd on an organic farm, you're kind of cool and maybe a little bit of a hipster. Maybe you've got a beard and some little black glasses, whatever. In the ancient Near East, however, shepherds were looked down upon by the majority of the populace. They were definitely lower class. They weren't even allowed to testify in courts. And they were considered by everyone to be ceremonially unclean. They were outcasts from polite society. Most people considered them to be thieves. But notice then the irony of the angel's message. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The gospel, that is the good news of the incarnation, the good news of restoration, the good news of reconciliation is for everyone. It's even for those the rest of society would consider to be the most unclean and the least deserving. Let that sink in for just a moment. In fact, the good news isn't just for all people, it's even specifically for those people. Jesus made it clear that the gospel was for Samaritans, for Roman centurions, for wayward women, for prostitutes, for tax collectors. It was for the sick and the poor and the broken. The gospel was for 15-year-old girls. It was for shepherds, and it was for Persian astronomers that we politely call magi. This message was and is specifically for undeserving people like you and like me. Back to verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The message to these shepherds was that the Messiah would be born not in a rich man's mansion, not in a shiny, germ-free maternity ward, not in a palace within the walls of Jerusalem, but that he would be born just like they would have been born. He was one of them. He was one of us. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. What was one angel became suddenly hundreds of angels. We're told that out of the blue, the angel was surrounded by a multitude of the heavenly host. The word we define as host in Greek is the word stratia. It means an army. As if it wasn't enough for one angel to address the shepherds in the middle of the night, suddenly an entire army of angels appears in the night sky. It would have been like that moment in a concert where you think the song is over and the lights go down, but then the lights come back up and the music booms. I'm sure it would have been utterly terrifying and jarring to these poor shepherds. And just look for a moment at the angel army. We're told that they were praising God. We're told that they were celebrating. And the content of their message was glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's more good news. The incarnation was to bring peace between God and humanity, to be more precise to those on whom his favor rests. Surely these shepherds would have felt favored by God. What a privilege that God had entrusted this message to them of all people. Back to verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, 
The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which, is, which were just as they had been told. So what should we take away from this particular and familiar Christmas story? Ultimately, we know that all of Scripture points us to God and to Jesus primarily, but I do want us to take a moment this morning and focus on the shepherds to see what we can learn from them. And the first thing we can learn from them is that fear is a perfectly appropriate emotion in the presence of God. Fear is a perfectly appropriate emotion in the presence of God. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Over and over again, people come into contact with God or with Jesus, or they come into contact with angels, and almost every single time, people are undone. In Isaiah 6, we read of Isaiah's encounter with God. Do you remember his response? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's undone. In the story of the Gerasene demoniac, the scariest character in the entire Bible, we see that uh, he, though he's the one that everybody else is afraid of, he's the one who is afraid when he encounters the Word made flesh. We see his response in Mark 5. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. He's terrified. Even the disciples were fearful when they witnessed Jesus calming the storm. We read in Mark 41, chapter 4, says this, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. When they saw that Jesus was more than just a prophet, they were terrified. Proverbs 1, 7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I could go on and on, but fear, or maybe more appropriately awe, is a completely logical response to coming into the presence of God. We could enter into a lengthy discussion here regarding the fear of the Lord. Suffice it to say there are different kinds of fear. There's the fear of punishment when you've done something wrong, and then there's the fear you feel when you stand with your toes on the edge of a thousand-foot drop in the Rocky Mountains. Maybe some of you guys have done that before. It's a different kind of fear. As Christians, we don't need to fear punishment from God because Jesus willingly received the penalty for our sin but we would be insane not to experience trepidation while standing on the edge of a precipice. We would be uh, crazy not to feel awe when watching a lightning storm over the ocean as it approaches the shore. The incarnation is just one of those moments. The greatness of God is on display, and we, like the shepherds, would do well to stand in awe for just a moment at the glory of the Lord in the moment of the incarnation. Martin Luther wrote of an awareness of God once while praying. He wrote this. He says, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty 
the angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. I invite all of us this Christmas season, this Advent season, to stand with the shepherds, to kneel with Martin Luther, and to be filled with awe and maybe just a little fear as we experience the glory of the Lord. We can learn that from the shepherds. What else can we learn from them? We can learn from them that the incarnation should lead us to proclaim the good news. The incarnation should lead us to proclaim the good news. Look at verses 17 and 18. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So after the angels left, the shepherds looked at one another and said, let's go. And they did. They left their flocks behind. Inevitably, some poor shepherd drew the short straw and had to stay back with the sheep. And they went to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem would have been a relatively small town, so they would have begun asking around until they found Mary and Joseph and a brand new baby in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And just imagine how strange it would have been for the shepherds to tell Mary and Joseph why they were there. Okay, just, just picture that for a moment. Because you know, they just saw the angels, but clearly Mary and Joseph didn't know that. And so they go in and say hey to them a little bit. And they say, so we were out in the fields watching our sheep. When out of the darkness, an angel appeared. You can just imagine the shepherds for a moment looking from Mary's face to Joseph's face to see if there's a hint of disbelief before going on with their story. And then they'd go, well, you'll never believe what the angel told us. And at this point, maybe Mary and Joseph might have jumped in. Maybe they would have interrupted. And they may have said, an angel appeared to each of us as well. And at this point, they might have begun sharing their stories of angels and dreams and signs And then finally, the shepherds may have been invited in to see the newborn Messiah. I'm sure they were in awe and somewhat in disbelief as they stood there looking upon the baby whose name was Jesus. At this, you could assume that the shepherds politely expressed their gratitude, and then they went back to the poor guy who had drawn the short straw, where they would have told them everything that they had just seen and everything they had just heard. Luke's text makes it clear, however, that they didn't just tell their buddy the good news. We read in verses 17 and 18, when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And so the first evangelists the world had ever known were a group of ragtag shepherds. And no one had to tell them to share the good news. There was no command to do that. They couldn't hold it in. It was like the man that we mentioned earlier, the Gerasene demoniac. After Jesus cast the demons out of him, we're told that the man went to the Decapolis. This is an area of 10 cities around the Sea of Galilee. And he told the people about what Jesus had done for him. And then all the people, when he told them his story, they were amazed as well. There's also the story of Philip in John 1, where he encounters Jesus. And then he goes and tells his friends that he's found the Messiah. This Christmas, a proper response would be for us to join with the shepherds, to join with the garrison demoniac, and with Philip in sharing the good news. All they did was share their stories of encountering Jesus and about what he had done for them. I'd like to challenge us to do the same. Finally, let's look at the last thing that we can learn from the shepherds' response to the incarnation. We see that the incarnation ultimately should lead us to worship. Look at verse 20. 
Verse 20 says, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. So the first response of the shepherds when confronted with the glory of the Lord was fear and awe. And once they got over their initial shock, they went to try and find Jesus, which they did. And we see that after that, after they found him and they spoke with Mary and Joseph, they headed back out into the hills and they were changed. Luke tells us again that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Their experience of the angels, of the glory of the Lord, and of encountering the infant Messiah had led them to worship. Two years later, we read that the Magi had the same response when they encountered God made flesh. We read in Matthew 2 of their response. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Worship was also the response of the disciples when Jesus walked on water, when he calmed the storm, and when he rescued Peter in Matthew 14. We read in verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Worship was also the response of Mary Magdalene. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. During each Christmas season, Most of us are filled with any number of different emotions. Some of us are filled with anticipation as we think about presents under the tree. Some of us are overwhelmed with nostalgia when we hear Christmas music and when we see Christmas lights. Still others of us are brimming with longing and excitement as we look forward to seeing children and as we look forward to seeing grandchildren. Still others of us experience a deep sadness as we wrestle with the reality of loved ones that we have lost. But this is precisely why the incarnation is so important. It's precisely why it matters so much. The incarnation is a reminder that God came to rescue us, that God came to rescue humanity because he loves us, and that should move us to worship. Bono is the lead singer of a band called U2, and he uh, captured this idea in a recent interview as he recounted worshiping uh, around Christmas time. He said this, I remember coming back from a very long tour. On Christmas Eve, I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It had dawned on me before, but it really sank in, the Christmas story. The idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough that it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by becoming a child born in straw poverty. A child, I just thought, wow, just the poetry. Unknowable love, unknowable power, 
describes itself as the most vulnerable. There it was. I was sitting there, and tears came down my face. And I saw the genius of this, the utter genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this, because that's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Love needs to find form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. To me, it makes sense. It's actually logical. It's pure logic. Essence has to manifest itself. It's inevitable. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would just have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. What Bono, in this quote, understands is what John 3.16 makes clear. The incarnation is ultimately an act of love from God to man. God became flesh to rescue us and to bring us home. My prayer for all of you this Christmas is that like Bono, like the shepherds, like the wise men, that you'll be moved to worship as you ponder the majesty and the mystery of the incarnation. My prayer is that like the shepherds, you'll experience the story of Jesus in such a way so that you'll be filled with awe and wonder at the greatness of the God who entered into humanity, not as a tourist, but as a permanent citizen of the human race. And I pray that like the shepherds, we won't be able to contain the good news of what God has done in our lives. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the incarnation. I thank you for what we can know in that act. Father, I thank you that you appeared to the lowest and what other people would have seen as the least deserving of all society in order to proclaim that message that salvation is for all people. And so, Father, I pray that as we ponder the shepherds and ponder the angels' message, as we ponder this moment of the incarnation, Father, that we would be filled with awe as we look and see you, the author of reality. Father, I pray that we would be moved to worship you. I pray that we would be moved to worship you because of the love that you have demonstrated to us in Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would even be more than willing to simply tell other people just about the amount that you have changed our hearts and our minds and our, lo- our lives. Father, we pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.